If you have Bibles and want to turn, we're looking this morning at Matthew chapter 6. We're going to read verses 1 through 8 and 16 through 18. This section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where in a sense a transition is made, where he's talked about what it looks like to conform your life to the Word of God, giving it ethical applications in various areas like honesty, integrity, purity, marriage, and such. He moves on now to the practical topic of piety, assuming that we live out spiritual disciplines. He's focusing, and let's remind ourselves what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It's all about life in the kingdom. It's not evangelistic. He's not trying to convert people in this. He's speaking to those who are meant to be, and I'll use the Hebrew word here, Shema people. Now, what is a Shema person? The Shema is the Hebrew word for to hear that was used in Deuteronomy 6 that Carl read a few moments ago when it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is he's speaking to the new Israel, the true Israel, if you would, and saying this is what it looks like, life in the kingdom, tangible, ordinary, in your work, in your family, at home, in your neighborhood, and behind closed doors, in your quiet time, in your giving, in your praying, in your fasting, in the disciplines he's he's saying this is what true piety, this is what, in other words, Life before God, life in the presence of God, looks like. So let's turn our hearts and attention. I'll read Matthew chapter 6, 1 through 8, and 16 through 18. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Listen to how one commentator summed up well what I think is the application And kind of what I want us to focus on as we exposit and go through this text. He writes, the essence of the principle for piety that Jesus develops has to do with the one before whom we stand when we do righteousness. Do we stand before others or do we stand before God? 
To develop a God-alone approach to piety, we must become more introspective. I know some of us don't like that. We need to ask, why am I doing this? Who is watching me? We also need to ask about our pleasures. What is it about this religious deed that brings me pleasure? This is what this passage is about. It is not about giving prayer and fasting. As we will see as we go through this, Jesus uses those three things as illustrations to really go after what the passage is about, and that is what is your true intention? What is your agenda? What is your heart's motive? Notice the text says, beware of practicing your righteousness. It doesn't say if you practice. He's assuming you give, you pray, you fast. I have to admit I struggled with that fasting one there a little bit. I was kind of like, hmm. And then I went, oh, the sermon's not about fasting. Good, I can be convicted about that later. Let's focus on what the sermon is about. And again, tough enough, heart's motives. But he uses those three things. He's saying, here's three ordinary areas of life. You're giving to the poor. You're praying. You're fasting. But why are you doing it? Whose attention are you seeking? Whose applause are you after? Whose eyes are fundamentally upon you? Here's another quote from C.S. Lewis that gets to the heart of what I think we need to develop as we work through this. He says, indeed, if we consider the unblemishing promises of reward and the staggering nature of rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Here's what he's getting at. He talks about our desires not being too strong but too weak. Our desire for what being too straight, too weak? Our desire for God. Our desire for the Heavenly Father for the sake of the Heavenly Father. Not for the sake of anything else. Lewis calls us half-hearted creatures who fool about with everything else and sacrifice the infinite joy. In one sense, he's saying, come to your senses and compare joys. He's saying food, it's a wonderful thing. Sex, it's a wonderful thing. Relationships, it's a wonderful thing. Does it even go on the map with relationship with your Heavenly Father? The text begins with a summary statement in verse 1, beware. And the key word is beware. Jesus is expositing here. He's given life in the kingdom, talking about wisdom literature. Beware means be on guard, be alert, keep. Watch out for it. And he's saying, watch yourselves. And he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. He's again teaching us life in the kingdom is the way of wisdom. And it's much like what it says in the Proverbs. Keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. Jesus is going after your heart. The motive behind your action. And he says, beware. And fundamentally, he's saying, beware of three things. Watch out for, guard, keep with all vigilance three areas. Your intentions, 
your inauthenticity, and Heavenly Father. Not beware as be on guard danger, but beware cultivate, nurture. Beware of your intentions, beware of inauthenticity, and beware of cultivating life with Father. First of all, beware of intentions. Jesus gives three very practical applications from everyday life. Giving, praying, and fasting. And one of the things that kind of informs us Jesus' teaching style, how he's doing this, is he teaches through repetition. So in one sense, he's going to talk about here, beware of the repetition of intentions when it comes to these three areas of giving, praying, and fasting. Then he's going to say beware of, and he's going to repeat the danger, the danger of hypocrisy, three times. Then he's going to talk about beware of cultivating Heavenly Father. And he actually, and I'll get to this when we get to this point, in verses 1 through 18, he actually mentions your father ten times. I think there's a priority there in terms of what we're to be looking at. Because ten times he talks about your Heavenly Father in this passage. But in each of these illustrations, Jesus says in the words of Sinclair Ferguson, when you give, when you pray, when you fast, forget about yourself. Forget about others. Keep it between yourself and the Lord and do it as unto the Lord. And in one sense, Jesus is talking here about humility. And again, C.S. Lewis has, I think, the best definition of humility. He says, humility is not an inferiority complex. Humility is not, oh, I'm terrible. Woe is me. C.S. Lewis defines humility as self-forgetfulness. Unself-consciousness. Not even being aware of yourself. How is that something to strive after? The first application from daily life that Jesus gives is he talks about a man who gives. And he says, basically, let's take a look at this man. See what he's doing? He's throwing a party. He's throwing a party for himself because what does he do? He hires musicians. He calls in the trumpeters. And why would he do that? The reason is obvious. If he's going to give to the poor, he's saying, I want to give attention to the gift. I want to say this provision has come for me. He's calling attention to himself. Today we might call a press conference. Or we might say, I'm blessed by having the ability to give this humble gift. And now this building is being named after myself. Okay, there is a such thing as false humility. Sinclair Ferguson says, this is not a gift in the sight of God. It is a purchase. The man is not helping the poor half as much as he is using the poor to help himself. The language Matthew uses here is the very same language that appeared on a settled accounts in the ancient world. When such men are seen by their fellows, God writes over their lives paid in full. Verse 2 says very clearly, you have received your reward. You've received your reward. Your reward is either going to be, and we're going to get to this, Heavenly Father... Or it's going to be whatever else you're seeking, the applause of men, the praise of men, what other people think, what you think of yourself, your reputation. But notice what Jesus is saying. It's been paid in full. There's no way God's going to give you any more reward. You've gotten your reward. He didn't take it away from, you know, if you're thinking God's harsh, he's giving you fully what you wanted in the first place. Part of our self-examination is examine what it is you really want. That's why it's hard work. There are subtle ways we go about doing this. I don't see too many of us say, I really want to have a building named after us. 
But I want you to think about, have you ever had a conversation with somebody, say, about the topic of giving? And you kind of went, that's subtle. I can't judge motives. I don't know, but these are tests you can give yourself. You know, have you ever kind of said, I gave and the Lord blessed me so much. Now, does the Lord bless him? Yes, he does. But again, test yourself. Watch yourself. Beware was the word Jesus used. Are you drawing attention to yourself? True humility is forgetting yourself. Jesus makes the same point when he gets to prayer. He says in terms of prayer, he says again, the issue is calling attention to yourself. He says, are you praying, standing on street corners, eloquent phrases? Do you, you know, are you making all the big theological words, lengthy prayers, praying more in public than in private? Now we're not, and Jesus is not outlawing public, we didn't disobey by having a prayer of confession and a prayer of petition. Okay, you do all those things. But how's your private prayer life? Are you privately, in secret, with your Father, where there's no other reward other than seeking God for God? And again, how about fasting? Like I said, this is not a sermon on fasting. But when you fast, do you disfigure your appearance? Oh, I'm so hungry today. Whoa. I want to be clear before there's a possible misconception or misunderstanding. The Christian life is hard. Jesus is challenging us about life in the kingdom. There's a reason Paul exhorts us to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It takes effort. The question is, the effort has to be at the right thing. The effort is not at becoming a disciple. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. That is given to you by a free gift. That's justification. But once you have that status, once you are righteous in God's eyes, there is effort. The effort is towards your sanctification. The effort is working out what God has already worked in. And Jesus is saying, here is where you are to place your effort. You're to place your effort at being aware, guarding against, keeping with all vigilance the intentions of your heart. Why does he do this? Second point, the danger here of inauthenticity. Again, Jesus informs us his teaching style is, and it kind of makes me good, feel good a little bit here. If I repeat myself, I'm in good company because Jesus tends to repeat himself in his sermon quite often here because three times he warns about the danger of hypocrisy. Verse 2, he says, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. Verse 5, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Then again in verse 16, he says, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. Okay, this is not the hardest biblical interpretation in the world. You don't have to be a rocket science to get this because Jesus is drumming it in again and again. What is he saying? He's saying guard against hypocrisy. Now, why does he do this? Verse 8 actually informs us to this. And John Stott tells us that verse 8 is actually the center and the central point of the entire Sermon on the Mount. In verse 8, Jesus says, do not be like them. And what he's talking about here is holiness. In the Old Testament, I, you know, I always like to say, what's the Jewish context, the Old Testament context that'd be familiar to the original readers as Jesus has given this? Leviticus 20, 26 says, you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples. 
that you should be mine. Jesus says, do not be like them. You have been, your essential relationship. When God justified you, what did he do? He says, I have separated you. I've made you mine. You belong to me. And what is the definition of holiness? Because again, there are so many misunderstandings here. I think we hear the word holiness and we think of completely the opposite, really, of what Jesus means. We think of things like dogmatism, rigidity, uptightness. Everything that would be the opposite of what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about being a true human being. Because the word holy means to be set apart. It means other. So when it's you shall be holy for I the Lord am holy. There is no one that's completely unique and other like the Lord. We are a reflection of that. We are a derivative of that. We are to be set apart. That's part of what this means. We are to be a light to the nations. And how are we a light? By our holiness. And Jesus is describing very practically a life of piety, a life of holiness. And he's saying here, what is one of the biggest dangers to holiness? Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, being a hypocrite. Now, we need to understand this again in the original context. The Greek word that is used here is a word from the world of the theater. Their practice of religion was theatrical. Literally play acting rather than authentic and genuine. Listen to how one commentator put it. One commentator wrote, In ancient drama, an important part of a play was fulfilled by the chorus. As in opera and musicals, it provided commentary on the action of the play. In fact, the Greek word Hippocrates was quite literally the one who answered the chorus. See, in the original context, that's what the Pharisees that Jesus was often speaking against were beginning to do. Their religious activities were no longer answering to God. Although they gave all the outward appearance of answering to God, what does Jesus say? Their hearts are far from me, are far from me. They were more obsessed, more consumed with their appearance before men. The same commentator says in ancient drama, actors also did not wear makeup like today. Instead, they wore masks. They literally hid behind masks, representing the parts they played. So this is what Jesus is saying. The hypocrite pretends to be one thing, but all the while he is really something altogether different. His outward actions may say one thing. His outward actions, the mask he's wearing might say, I'm consumed with the Lord. I'm focused on the Lord. But the question are, where are your inward motives? Where are your inward desires? What recognition? In other words, he's inauthentic. He's not genuine. Here's the test. Again, how do you respond? Trying to just be very practically, think about this for a second. How do you respond to either praise or criticism? Now, I know we might say the right things outwardly. Somebody criticizes us and we go, thank you, brother, for that rebuke. I really appreciate that, that, you know, boy, you have my back. That's good. What about your hidden heart that only God sees? Your father who sees in secret. Or we get the praise. Now, oh, I appreciate that. All glory to God. Praise to him. Oh, yeah. Inwardly. That was a good pregnant pause I gave in the middle of that sermon. (laughs) 
Do you have the courage to even give yourselves these tests? Do you have the courage to think? Remember I said at the beginning, introspection is part of the application here. When the text says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men in order to be seen by them, Jesus is not saying, you know, the salute, don't walk away from this and go, I get the solution. No more giving, no more praying, no more fasting. Obedient me. That's not what the text is saying. So we've seen the challenge. Challenge is hard enough. We've seen the danger. And and think of the danger. If we're all inauthentic, how can we comfort one another? How can we console one another? How can we have true community? If if we're all behind masks and all we offer ourselves is the good polished us, what about when we have a real need? How... By the way, if all we offer is the good polished us, where can there be true accountability and true confrontation? If all we're offering is the best and not the worst of ourselves, the part of ourselves, think about how David prayed in the psalm. Why, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will I continue to have sorrow in my tears? Friends, that's authentic. If all we're offering is our masks, there, are, there is no community. There's no community behind inauthenticity. So I happen to think this is kind of a make-or-break issue here. So in other words, what's the remedy? What's the solution? I've given you two points on the problem and the danger. How about the third, which is beware? In other words, nurture, cultivate life with your father. In Matthew 6, 1 through 18, and obviously it's not by accident, God is called Father on 10 different occasions, which means the real issue is what we think of having God as our Father and whether we are fundamentally and functionally cultivating intimacy with him as our Father and practical application, because I know Not all of us have had ideal relationships with our earthly father, and that can be projected onto our image of God as our heavenly father. But can I tell you one of the ways I think we can cultivate life with our heavenly father, share those sorrows, share those lost hopes, share your real authentic feelings with your heavenly father. Take a risk on him. Take a risk on him. The scriptures say he is faithful, and I happen to believe he is faithful. That's part of cultivating and nurturing. We do that in marriage. I hope we do that in marriage. You're supposed to cultivate and nurture. There is no way at the moment of saying, I do, we know everything there is about our spouse. You need to nurture and you need to cultivate that relationship. How much more do you need to cultivate your relationship with your heavenly father. So what do you think of the notion, the reality that God is your father? Since Jesus is saying this is the solution to living before men, being overwhelmed with the applause, being overwhelmed with approval, popularity, what other people think, making other people happy. Later in the sermon, it will be the solution to anxiety Life with Father is the solution. And listen to how J.I. Packer in his classic work, Knowing God, puts it. You want to talk about prioritizing this? No one prioritizes it like Packer. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child. 
and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship, his prayers, and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Adoption is the highest privilege the gospel offers. That justification by which we mean God's forgiveness of the past, together with his acceptance of the future, is, yes, the primary and fundamental blessing. That's not in question. But adoption is higher because of the richer, more intimate relationship it gives, it involves with the Father. Listen to what he is saying and the challenge he's putting forth. Says you're enti- he says, how well you understand the gospel, how well you understand Christianity. He says, does the notion of God being your father control why you came to worship this morning, controlled your prayer, controlled your perspective, your outlook on life? Three times, verses 4, verses 6, verse 18 It says, and your father who sees, and that word sees means is intimately involved. Okay, not distant, no deistic universe where God's above and we're, but he's intimately involved and he will reward you. Which kind of harkens to the question I referred to earlier, what kind of reward are you looking for? The hypocrite seeks a reward but doesn't trust his heavenly father or his heavenly father's goodness to give him the kind of reward that will satisfy his heart. But remember, part of what this passage is teaching us is you will get what you're looking for. We become what we worship. God will give you a reward. It will be what you want. If you want him, he'll give you himself. I remember first becoming a Christian early on during my college days learning to memorize scripture for the very first time. And I remember hearkening upon and being challenged to memorize Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for wholeness, to give you hope in a future. And I can remember how my distorted mind, and maybe some of yours thought about that. I said, well, that's a nice verse. I know what that means. I know the plans. God's sovereign. Okay, I, I like that part. That's good. He's in control of this. He has the power. That's plans for, you know, things like 2.4 kids, everybody being healthy, white picket fence. I don't want to be greedy, not rich, but upper middle class is nice. I know the plans I have for you. Did that really include my wife in her early 40s becoming disabled? Did that really include her... Having all the gifts that she has, and and I'll brag on her, she is one of the most talented people I know, but not being able to sing in the choir anymore, not be able to come to worship. Are those part of the plans of God? Now hear me carefully. Let me say without doubt and unequivocally, absolutely yes. They are the definite, not just the knowledge of God, the definite plans of God. But the rest of that verse in Jeremiah 29 says, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. Here's And it's still being sorted out today. I need to have and you need to have sorted out our chief reward is God himself. We ought to be bursting at the seams that God has said, I call you to know me. That ought to blow our socks away. And because it doesn't, to that degree, we know our desires are distorted. 
And what God is going after is rearranging our desires. Our desires are not too strong, they're too weak. C.S. Lewis was right. Pay attention and beware of the desires of your heart. Cultivate and seek a desire, a hunger for relational knowledge of God. See, this would have blown the socks off the original hearers in the Jewish and the Roman world that Jesus was speaking to, speaking ten times as God is your heavenly father. There's a man, his name is Francis Lyle, and he wrote a book called Sons and Citizens talking about Roman adoption. And he said this, he says, the profound truth of Roman adoption was that the adoptee, and see, we're not children of God by nature. We're not children of God by our choice. We're children of God by God's choice of adoption, adopting us. So we're adoptees. And he says, the profound truth of Roman adoption, so this is the context that Jesus is delivering this word and doctrine, was that the adoptee was taken out of his previous state and placed in a new relationship of son to his father. So think about that. I have more to the quote, but think about that. Part of adoption is you're taken out of your previous state. Our previous state was dead in trespasses and sins, alienated completely from the life of God, in exile, purposeless, without significance, lonely, living outside your design. I'm giving a lot of grace when I say a fish out of water. That's your previous estate and placed in a new relationship of son to his new father. The quote goes on, he says, all his old debts are canceled. And in effect, the adoptee started a new life as part of his new family, which means on the one hand, the new father owned all the new offspring's property, controlled his personal relationships, and had the rights of discipline. Yes, you have to deny yourself. That means give up your independence. But on the other hand, the father was liable for the actions of the adoptee. God our Father takes upon himself our liability of how many times we have stupidly, wickedly, messed up, sinned, erred, grieved him. He takes that liability upon himself. And therefore each owes the other reciprocal duties of support and maintenance. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. What is the reward the Father gives us? Himself. Paul writes to the Corinthians, God is faithful, by whom you were called. Called what? Into fellowship. That means partnership, relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. Our calling is a calling into fellowship. As we go to the Lord's table, we're going to the means God has given us to this family meal of fellowshipping with himself through the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father who art in heaven, thank you that you have adopted us. That, you, that means we're wanted. I mean, there's so much that I could just think about in terms of that. Any of us who've gone through life wondering what it's like to be wanted, feeling very alone. Here we have a reality that we're actually wanted by the most important being in the universe, more important than any husband or wife, any friendship, 
you actually want us, and you want us to the extreme and to the extent that you sacrificed your son so you wouldn't lose us. So I pray, Father, that you would teach us to cultivate our life with you, to cultivate it on a daily basis. I pray that you would, in a sense, reorient and rearrange our desires, that time in your word would not be, oh, I have to do this, but it would be, oh, my goodness, my father is speaking to me. My father is talking to me. My father is opening his heart to me. My father is showing me himself. My father is showing me his involvement in the world. Oh, that we would be, that we would desire more. Our desires are not strong enough. They're too weak. So increase our desire for you. In Jesus' name, amen.